Do you believe that people can be miraculously healed? It's a question I want you to think about and be confronted with this week and in weeks to come. If you ever get sick, do you only go to the doctor or do you pray for healing? Today we begin our return through Matthew's gospel. If you would, turn with me in Matthew chapter 8, on page 813 in the Black Bibles around you. We're going to see a series of healings and miracle stories, if you want to call them that. These stories are grouped into three sets of three in chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew's gospel. I don't believe they're chronologically in order. I think they are thematic and purposeful that the editor, who we believe is Matthew, whom the title of this gospel account of Jesus is named, has been intentional and been led by the Spirit to communicate something in these groupings. It's three sets of three totaling ten powerful signs and wonders. My hope is that as we go through these stories today and in the weeks to come, that our perspective about healings and miracles will hopefully be corrected if either we fall on two temptations or extremes. Some read these stories and say that Jesus primarily came to heal physical ailments, that the message of hope that we bring is that he heals us from our sickness and our pain, that we too have the power of God's Spirit that Jesus had, so therefore we should all be healers to those around us, and that people should all receive healing, and that if they don't get healing, it's because of their sin or lack of faith. That would be one extreme I would encourage you to stay away from. A second way to overcorrect that extreme is the way some have read these stories and think that miraculous healings really just don't happen anymore, that the main point of these texts was for Jesus to demonstrate a spiritual problem about our sin, and that what Jesus came for wasn't physical healing really at all, but the deeper problem of our sin. I'll be arguing that both of these positions have some truth to them, but a closer look at the texts themselves in the New Testament, especially this one in Matthew, will show a third position that's needed that hopefully balances us out. So with that, let's read Matthew chapter 8. Starting in verse 1, we're going to take the first series of three healing stories, verses 1 through 17. When he, being Jesus, came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. 
When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer, the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. The questions I asked at the beginning of this sermon I think can be quite complex. I think sometimes light is brought when we bring a little simplicity, and I'm going to try and be as simple and as clear on sometimes what can be a complex issue. Three questions that will serve for the outline of this message that I want to address. Question number one is, what kind of miracle or healing do we see Jesus doing? Second question, who are the beneficiaries of this healing? Who is Jesus coming toward? Third question, why? Why do we have these stories? Why did Jesus heal these people? And what does that really ultimately tell us about Jesus and us? So first, what? What, who, and why? What kind of miracles do we see as we read not just this selection, but this is a good intro to really the rest of this section. And anytime you read the gospel stories or the book of Acts and you see miracles of these kind. Well, what kind of miracles are they? They're healings from sicknesses, from people that are decayed and destroyed by the darkness that's around us in this world. So why, why do these? Why communicate these? In John's gospel, he's going to give us a little saying that says, now, if we were to talk about all the different signs and wonders that Jesus did, there would not be books to write them, which should clue you in to say these ones are selected for a reason. So why these? Why healing of leprosy? Why a paralyzed man who we don't even know his name, he's a servant of a centurion soldier and a mother-in-law? Many people will quickly say, it's to show that Jesus is God. 
that Jesus is not just a normal man, that he's God, and that he has the power over these forces of darkness and evil and destruction and decay. And so Jesus performed miracles. You read that, your conclusion should be, see, he's God. Interesting problem with that being the answer to why and what is going on with these miracles. Listen to this quotation from one theologian. The strongest claims about the incarnation of Jesus, meaning that Jesus is God in flesh, in the New Testament are made mostly by Paul in his letters. And they have nothing to do with the mighty works that Jesus performed and the accounts that are in the Gospels, usually offered as proofs of Jesus' divinity. Hmm. That's what I say after I read that. This is not what the Jews will conclude after Jesus performs miracles. Oh, that must be God. No, they say magician. They see sorcerer. You realize in this ancient world, just performing miracles does not set you off as, oh, that must be God. Something more is going on, my friend. Don't just read the Gospels on the surface and quickly conclude, okay, that's what it's trying to communicate. Jesus is God. He has power. No. That's still true. I'm not denying that point. Jesus is, in fact, God in flesh. That is on display through his miracles. Oh, but so, so much more is on display, is my point. By looking at what he is doing, we should see all kinds of things about who Jesus is, what he's come to do, his identity, and not just simply, well, he has the power. Take, for example, the first miracle, leprosy. It was not by accident that in between chapter 7 and chapter 8, we took a little break as a church, for many of you that have been coming along, and we studied the book of Exodus. It was not an accident, because I knew that in the book of Exodus, as we just covered, Moses performed ten miraculous plagues to set his people free. That one of the main themes throughout the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is to be compared to Moses. Notice the first verse of Matthew chapter 8, when he came down from the mountain. Do you know anyone else that went up a mountain and came down a mountain? And while he was on the mountain, got what we would call commands or laws, the Ten Commandments. Yes, Moses and Exodus, that's one of the main stories of Exodus. So Jesus is coming down a mountain. Jesus is performing 10 miraculous signs in the next two chapters after coming down from the mountain. Do you remember the first sign that Moses was supposed to do when he put his hand in his cloak or in his pocket and then pull it out and then put it back in again? Anybody remember? Shout it out. Leprosy. We read about this just a few weeks ago. Should it be a surprise that the first miracle that you see is about Jesus healing leprosy. That's just one layer, my friends. One layer of what is going on here. Furthermore, you should fast forward and read in the gospel accounts that when John the Baptist is in jail, he's wondering, I don't know, maybe if Jesus is truly the Messiah, he's really the one, the Christ, that we've been waiting for of the people of Israel, then I wouldn't be in jail anymore. And so he's struggling. My guess is you and I, 
when things are going bad, we're wondering, hey, is this Jesus guy really all who he says he is? And so put yourself in those shoes. And what does Jesus say to John the Baptist? The lame walk. The blind can see. Lepers are cleansed. In other words, the cleansing of lepers is a direct fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy that when the Messiah comes, lepers will be cleansed. So first point, first question. What is Jesus doing? He is not simply flying like Superman. He is not lifting up literal mountains and throwing them around to say, hey, I'm God. I'll show you that I'm God. I've got power. And disappears. Vanish. Poof. When we watch Avengers, when we watch fiction stories and they want to try and show God-like power, that's the kind of stuff they do, right? Lightning coming out of your eyes or something like that. It's a whole different kind of miracle when you look at the miracles of Jesus. They're communicating and preaching and displaying that the kingdom of God is here. We're kind of tipping our hand to our last question, so let's move on to question number two. Who? Who did Jesus heal? One of the most interesting things you should notice in the first story, look at verse two in the way this leper man He could have what we call Hansen's disease now, which is leprosy, where the nerve endings of your fingers, you don't feel them anymore, your toes. So imagine if you're cooking in the kitchen, you don't feel anything, and your hand's on the stove and you don't realize it, your hand gets burned off, right? This is what happened to lepers. It could be that that's what he's talking about, but the the Greek word here for leper is just very broad. It could be various skin diseases. So he's got a skin disease. But notice that it's not heal me. Did you notice that? It says, cleanse me. You can make me clean. Which again shows that this is not all just about, well, he's just showing that he's God and he's healing somebody. He's healing particular kind of people for a specific reason. To cleanse them. Secondly, notice that he doesn't just clean a leper. He cleans or heals a a Gentile slave to whom we know nothing about. Centurion means Roman soldier. Romans would have been the enemy for the Jewish people. Jesus is a Jew, so put yourself in the context of what's happening here. A Roman soldier, the very people that would help execute Jesus when he dies, that kind of person is coming to Jesus with faith that believes that Jesus could heal his servant who's paralyzed. Who is being healed? An unclean leper, a Gentile slave, and a dying woman. And not because I have any prejudice against all you ladies in the room, but we need to stress the word, a woman. Because we're talking about the first century. We're talking about people that did not view women as dignified, as equal with men in terms of their value and their worth. Second-class citizens. Go down the list one more time. A leper, a servant 
of a Gentile who is a Roman soldier and a woman. Jesus is healing poor, outcast, ostracized, overlooked kind of people. Maybe he's putting in his words that he just spoke as he was on the mountain. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are all of those who are hurting and broken and forgotten and ostracized. This unclean leper, by the way, does not mean that he is unclean just because he sinned. Uncleanliness in the book of Leviticus, which gives us unclean laws and regulations for the people of Israel. It doesn't mean, oh, they're they're a sinner. They're unclean because they've sinned. Say, for example, somebody is burying their father and they touched a dead body. Well, now you're unclean. Is it sinful to touch a dead body? Is it sinful to bury your dad? No. So make sure you get that clear when we think about who this person is. It's not that he's a specially bad sinner and that's why he has leprosy and so Jesus is coming to cleanse him because of that. He's unclean because of his leprosy, because it's contagious. Listen, for example, from Leviticus 13 about what would happen for a leper or an unclean person that's similar. They were not to be near other people. They were not to be touched. So hear this. As for the leper who has the infection... His clothes shall be torn. So it's all ripped up so you can know, like, hey, stay away from him. Second, the hair of his head should be uncovered, shaved off. He shall cover his mustache. And he shall cry wherever he goes, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has this infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp. That is who Jesus came to heal. And another way to think about it is that's who came to Jesus in our text. And Jesus did not send him away. He's transcending the Old Testament law here. He came to fulfill the law he told us in Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20. I did not come to abolish the law. I'm not just flippantly contradicting it. Oh, I don't care about Leviticus 13. He's coming to transcend the law and the prophets. So the law simply states that if a person has leprosy, that they should run around going unclean, unclean, so that nobody accidentally touches that person and gets the contagious disease. Could you imagine what that person's going through? Loneliness, discouragement, hopelessness, all the isolation. If you've felt lonely before, then you would be able to relate with this person and maybe not even quite to the point of what's going on here. We don't know how long, we don't know if this has been years and decades, etc., so we're not going to read into it too much. But hopefully you can get a sense of the weight of what this man is going through, this leper. To avoid all human contact, when was the last time he got a, a good hug, a good firm handshake, a kiss from his wife, etc.? Remarkably, he does not follow Leviticus 13 very well, And he comes to Jesus. He approaches Jesus. We don't know why. But certainly chapter 4 told us that he'd already started doing some miraculous things 
early on in his ministry, and we know from his preaching that he is for people in this condition. So it shouldn't be too surprising that this person would respond with faith, believing in what Jesus had taught and what he had done, and want to go to him and approach him. For Jews, touching a leper would be like digging your fingers in a rotten corpse today, if I could put it bluntly. And so that's the leper. The Gentile slave, again, we don't know much about this slave other than that they're paralyzed, that they're not with Jesus there, and that the person that wants the healing is an outsider, a Roman centurion. And then lastly, the dying woman whom Jesus goes into Peter's house. It's Peter's mother-in-law. Any of you that have former Catholic backgrounds will like to see a little footnote there. It's interesting, right, that Peter is called the first pope and that popes aren't supposed to be married. Well, what do we do with this? (laughs) Peter was obviously married and has a mother-in-law. Another way to look at this question, though, who Jesus heals is not just the kind of people on the outside, they're outsiders, they're ostracized, but what's on the inside of these people? You notice similarities, especially with the first two, their faith, their humility? The first person, the leper, says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Can't you see the faith that's already there to begin with? He's not doubting Jesus' ability to cleanse him, to make him right in social standing. That's what cleansing is. It's not just the healing of the skin's disease. He needs to be reestablished into the community as a Jewish person and not ostracized from the temple, from the regular fellowship that he would have been neglected from. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. In other words, in order for Jesus to do anything, he needs to be both willing and able. My question to you is, do you doubt either one of those? Do you doubt his ability? No, no, those things don't happen. Maybe these were fictional stories to begin with. Maybe this was all just psychological, and these people didn't really have this experience. Maybe the New Testament authors made this up in order to encourage Christianity. Do you believe that he's able? Secondly, do you believe that he is willing? When you read this first story, shouldn't you see, I will, and be warmed to your heart about the compassion and the mercy of Jesus. I will. I am willing, in other words. I want to. I have a heart that longs to cleanse people, to heal people. He is willing. We often feel like outcasts at times. I'm sure some of you actually not just feel that way, but maybe you are an outcast. Jesus doesn't have a category of outcasts. Those who come to him for healing and cleansing and health and salvation can be confident that he is willing and doesn't turn you away when you have faith to say in your humility, you're my only hope, Jesus. I come to you. Cleanse me, heal me, restore to me the fellowship that I need with God, the Heavenly Father. He won't step back repulsed, Ew, ugh. Turn his face or his shoulder. Jesus wants to touch you, heal you. 
You know, in the Old Testament, when Elijah and Elisha did miraculous signs and even healed a leper, they did through, through earnest prayer. As far as we know, Jesus didn't even have to pray. He touches, he speaks. Do you love the faith of the centurion that says, I'm a man under authority too. I realize, Jesus, you are a man under authority from the Heavenly Father. If you say, then it'll happen. So you don't even need to go heal the guy. You don't even need to touch him. Jesus showing the authoritative word that he has. Look back at chapter 7 and notice that when Jesus was finished saying these things in verse 28 of chapter 7, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority. His words had authority. Oh, and we're about to find out in the next chapter just how deep and wide and rich that authority really is. I think we should notice that Jesus is amazed. He is dumbfounded. He is astonished at this man's faith. It would be a cool thing for you to study sometime different traits of Jesus, the emotional life of Jesus. He feels sadness and grief. Maybe study what does Jesus get excited about? What does he get amazed by? Well, here, here's one evidence. Jesus is amazed by the faith of a man who is not a Jew. And I think in a large way, this is supposed to be an indictment against those Jewish people around Jesus that are lacking all kinds of faith or rejecting him. In this section, you don't see it yet. But if you take the three sections of the three sets of miracle stories, you're going to notice that opposition is going to start building from Jesus' miracles. If Jesus is going around just healing random people to just show that he's God, why would people get upset? Because they're subversive. They're undermining the established religion of the Jewish people of his day. He's doing and saying things like he's got an authority and and a sense of who he is from his own. You know, he's he's making statements and claims that, that are not in accordance with everybody else in the day around him. And so Jesus is very much so poking here when he looks at this man's faith and says, out of all of Israel, I have not found such faith. Could you imagine hearing that? Could you imagine being at like a family gathering and having some homeless person come in and the patriarch, the head of the home, say something like, out of everybody, this is the truest family member. All of the rest of you, you're not loyal to me, but this guy, this is my brother, this is my son. The rest of you, you've disowned me and you've rejected me. Feel that kind of experience when you read stories like this. Of what's really going on when Jesus is healing people. He's saying that there's going to be a great banquet day that was prophesied about. They're going to gather from the east and the west. It's a direct quotation or allusion to an Old Testament prophecy. And so when you read that section and you see that, yeah, it'll be the sons of the kingdom. In other words, Jewish people will be on the outside And it'll be people like this who have true faith in me. So Jesus heals outsiders. Jesus heals people who have faith. I think we should apply this to our church in our lives. As a church, our mission should primarily be toward outsiders, 
ostracized people. Intentionally, I think that more and more our prayer in our heart should be to figure out how we can intentionally find those kind of people, not just wait for them to come to us. There's plenty of opportunities around. Two weeks ago, I had a meeting with an elementary school principal. She says 40-some of her kids are homeless. Just right here in Palatine. I mean, it's maybe one, one or two miles east of us from this building. Many of you that have been serving and giving food to those in the Rayon Grove community should be well aware of the needs here in Palatine. I was very much encouraged by our visitors last week. The family that was with us and was candidating and thinking about coming to help plant a church in Woodstock, they intentionally adopted a young girl who had a disability and had an accident where her arm had to be removed. In that culture where she was from, the reason she was put up for adoption is because her mom and nobody wanted her anymore. But Christians see the need for those who are ostracized and on the outside, the rejected ones, and they go and they bring those people in and they make them family members. Is that not a good illustration for us that we should seek this not only here in our community, but to the nations and the world? Who are the people that are forgotten, left out, ostracized, being human trafficked, etc., etc.? The needs are too far to list, too great and so overwhelming for one small church. But friends, each of us should be digging down deep in our own hearts and realizing that we were ostracized. We were on the outside. And Jesus came to us to touch us, to bring us in, to heal and cleanse us. Have you received that mercy? If you have, be freshly reminded of it and let that compel and drive you to serve those outside of this church. Randy Stark is a historian who has written a fascinating piece about how Christianity exploded in the Roman Empire shortly after the time of Jesus. To sum up, one of the main points of his book is that plagues and sicknesses were running through the Roman Empire and that it was the Christians who would care for those people with contagious diseases even at the risk of their lives. Many of those Christians ended up dying, by the way. But scores and scores of people were coming to faith in Jesus in these early centuries of the Christian church all over the Roman Empire, so much so that one statistician says that it's probably a close to about half of the Roman Empire got converted to Christianity. And Rodney Stark has pointed out that he thinks in part because of the compassion of Christians to go out to those people that would not be touched or loved or desired by anybody else. When everybody around in the cities was saying, flee, get away, because the, the plague is coming and you're going to die, Christians would stay and care for those who are hurting and dying. Whether it's in the New Testament and you see Jesus himself doing it, or in church history, or an example from somebody who was in our midst last week, or even some of the brothers and sisters around you, I hope and pray that our church would be continually reminded that this is our mission our mission is to bring healing and comfort and hope to the world around us. Two weeks ago, didn't Zach do an excellent job of pointing to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1? We have received comfort from Christ. So now let us bring comfort to those around us. Children, if you're in the room right now, I want to especially have you to think about sometimes the way that kids eat, very easily get pushed to the side in friend circles 
Maybe you've been around and seen kids that kind of get picked on, bullied. Maybe you've felt that way. I think it would be great to see at Embassy some of our children and teenagers to rise up to the occasion and see that when you see no one sitting with that person at the lunch table because of maybe they're, they're different, maybe you'd be the kind of person that goes and sits next to them and befriends them and loves them. What sick people have you tried to help recently? How have you been acting as a healer to these kind of people? What do you think you'd do if the equivalent of a leper came up to you and sought for help? Wanted to be incorporated into your community, your friendship circle, maybe even come into your home? Do you back off with horror, sickened? Or do we do what Jesus does? Do you even have a heart to want to touch the sick and receive the outcast and bind up the brokenhearted and heal the wounded? I believe discipleship means participating in the healing ministry of Jesus in various ways. Praying for healing? Absolutely. Ministering when healing doesn't come? Praying for perseverance? If you don't think that's the case, then come back next week and see that the very next story is all about following Jesus. In between these three sets of three are two stories of the cost of following Jesus. Matthew is not doing that accidentally. As we read these healing stories, we should be challenged and confronted with our own lives. How are we doing at following Jesus in these ways? This is who he came for. People like us. That's why Eddie read the scripture that he did. I don't know if you've felt like an outsider before. I felt like an outsider not too long ago when I was in Southeast Asia. It was a bit humorous because I was a tall, white person in a land full of shorter, darker-skinned people. But I will say that observing the friends and the family members that I was visiting, being an outsider can wear on you. I was only there for a few days, but I could see some of my family members that were really struggling with being stared at constantly everywhere you went. Many of you here in this room, you might be in a majority culture where you don't feel like an outsider and people don't want to take pictures with you or look at you or turn their head when you walk by. Others of us in this room might know what that feels like. Can we be a church that wants to make disciples of all the nations and be especially tender-hearted toward those who feel like they're outsiders, whether it be because of their skin color, their race, their gender, their economic status, their education level. That's who. Let's finally ask why. Why did Jesus heal? Why do we have these stories? I'm going to give you three answers. I think all three of these texts point to a deeper meaning than just Jesus is God, although that's true, and his power is on display, although that's true. Story number one, look at the way the story ends. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. Now pause, this isn't part of this point, but the reason Jesus has these different sayings is mostly because of political reasons. 
As I just mentioned, as Jesus does more of these kind of things and the way he does it with the things he's saying, it is politically incorrect. It's not a good move. So if that word keeps spreading and more people keep coming, then Jesus is going to die. And as you're about to see, that's exactly what happens. So there's often the case where Jesus is going around and telling people, stop, stop saying this. Not because he doesn't want people to know. It's not because he doesn't want his glory to spread. It's just that he knows that there's a time appointed for him to die in a certain time in a certain way. And it's not straight after this guy gets healed from a leper. So he tells him, don't tell people. Then what does he say next? But go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. There's a big debate whether or not this last phrase, for a proof to them, is actually in the negative, not the positive. So it could be, by the way it's written, as a testimony against them. Either way, I think here lies the the big reason and explanation of what's going on here. Jesus is saying, go to the priests. Offer your gift just like it was commanded when you're being cleansed or your, your leprosy has been healed or it's been, you know, the disease has run its course and now you're able to come back into society. He's restoring this person to full fellowship of the Israelite community. That's one thing he's doing. That's why it's more about cleansing than it is just healing of leprosy. But secondly, I think Jesus wants to show the priests who's the greater high priest. I think he wants to show that cleansing came from another temple and it wasn't a building. It was his own hand that touched him. So reason number one, as a witness, either for or against, however we want to translate that, to the priests. This is why this story's here, and this is why soon enough priests are not going to be very happy with Jesus, and the high priests are going to want this man killed, because he's making claims about another temple and another authority and another way to find forgiveness and healing. And two weeks from now, you're going to see Jesus heal someone, and they'll be like, hey, how do you have the authority to forgive sins? That's only supposed to be done in the temple. Same way. Right here, cleansing should only happen through the temple, through the priest. And he's supposed to go and tell the priests, hey, I already got cleansed. Wonder how they responded when they heard that news. Second, the second story shows, as you see the very end of the story, what I was alluding to earlier. Look at verse 11. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into utter outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the centurion said to Jesus, go, let it be done as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. I believe this story is ultimately telling us that Jesus is coming to the nations. The whole point of the nation of Israel was that they would not just be an ethnic people consumed with their own ethnocentrism, only Israelites, but a beacon of light to the rest of the world around them and showing the love and mercy of God to the nations around them. And so this miracle story, this healing story, seems to kind of undermine that sort of ethnic-focused, if you want to call it racism, prejudice toward people outside of Israel. And so Jesus is going right at the heart in this way and saying, no, no. The greatest faith that I've seen is not even from an Israelite, it's from this man. And guess what? There's going to be scores and scores of people from all over the world that are going to come to the nation of Israel through me, not you, because you've neglected the nations. 
So that's reason number two, to bring the nations to the great banquet of the kingdom of heaven when Jesus establishes that here on the earth fully and finally. So first, as a witness against the priest. Second, as an indictment against the nation of Israel for their ethnocentric pride and their love of their advantage they have as Israelites. Third, to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament and bring kingdom of heaven here on earth. You notice the last phrase in the last story. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and he bore our diseases. Jesus is inaugurating the kingdom. He's fulfilling the prophecy of the servant that was going to come that Isaiah spoke of in multiple times. So you read Isaiah chapter 40 all the way to the end of Isaiah 66. You're going to have these repeated poems of a servant who's going to come. Sometimes that servant is talking about the corporate people of Israel and sometimes it's about a particular man. And many of you who are around this room, you've heard it quoted and read at this church a lot. It's one of the key top five passages of the Old Testament that I've mentioned in the past. One of the most important passages, Isaiah chapter 53. It's talking about an individual man who would be the servant representing all of Israel and he would take on our illness. He would bear our diseases. So why would people get upset with Jesus healing a bunch of people? It's because the Jews are upset that the feast of the kingdom of heaven is coming to Gentiles. It's because he's saying that the kingdom is established here, that he is the temple, he is the king, he is the servant, he is fulfilling prophecy. We also need to see through this that Jesus came to save people from their sins, and as he does so, he heals the world through his death on the cross. It's not one or the other. Remember the starting question? Do you believe in healings? Is Jesus' main message just to heal the physical world? And that when we get together and we pray, 100% of our prayer requests, or the vast majority of them, should be focused on physical illness. Have you ever been at prayer meetings like that, by the way? At times it can get like, is that, is that all God does? Is just care about our sicknesses? But on the flip side, don't go like, he doesn't care about that. We shouldn't pray about that. How can you not read these stories and conclude that, no, Jesus cares about the physical world? How did he come into the world, by the way? As a spirit form or as a human being? He so cares about the physical world, he became part of the physical world. And on top of that, he touched the darkness of the physical world, the contagious and the evil and the sick things that he wasn't supposed to touch. He went in and kind of leaned in to those dark spaces and brought the light Think of it this way. Jesus was supposed to stay away, if he's a good Jew, from contagious diseases. He leans in. He touches. He should at that moment have his cleanly nature now be unclean. It should transfer. But what happened? It wasn't that the uncleanliness of the sick people was transferred to him. It was that the righteous holiness of Jesus was transferred to them as they were cleansed. 
Friends, this is a picture of the whole gospel in and of itself, in a nutshell. And it's not just between sin and physical healing. It's all of those wrapped up in one. Jesus came to the world to care and redeem the whole world, and that sin is the reason why the world's in the problem that it is. Christian understanding is that sin came into the world, and therefore, through sin, death came, and sickness that leads to death. So don't misunderstand me trying to pit one against the other. It's one and both the same. Look at these healing stories and see that Jesus cares about your sickness. Realize he cares about the cause of that sickness, the fundamental cause, which is your sin. And it's both. We don't have to choose. Pray for both. Long for both. Realize that the whole gospel story culminates in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus where he maintains his human form and that as he stands right now, he's a human who's healed and cleansed. Even though he bore, he took on all of our uncleanliness. I really think that it's at least poetically appropriate for you when you see Jesus' hand touching that his contagious holiness is healing and restoring wholeness, the Hebrew word shalom, to this person. At the same time, it's almost like through his life, he's continually to accumulate the bearing weight of that sin and sickness so that when he dies on the cross, he, he bore all of the sin and sickness. It's as if he's a magnet of those things, pulling it into himself and bearing all the full brunt of it on the cross as he dies. And then he defeats it through his death and resurrection and ascension as he reigns and rules over sickness, death, and disease. His power comes out from him when the woman who's bleeding for years and years touches the fringe of his garment. And that's why I mean, I even think there's something not just poetic, but even potentially literal of when Jesus heals, there's something that he's absorbing as he's giving out until he fully gives of himself as he hangs on a cross and dies for sinners. This is, by the way, why the first scripture reading of the service was Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. And there's an altar of coals underneath of the throne that Isaiah sees. And one of these seraphim, these creatures, serpent-like creatures with wings, not angels, just to get our Bibles straight. Seraphim means serpent-like, so it's some sort of creature. Some creature grabs a coal. And remember what Isaiah said, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And the coal touches and cleanses. It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the cleansing power of the touch of Jesus, the contagious holiness of his mercy coming out and cleansing us. See it in the Old Testament. See it in the New. See it ultimately in the face of Jesus himself. Why did he come? to fulfill the Old Testament and bring the kingdom of heaven here on earth and restore and redeem all of the earth, including your dying bodies. When you hear news that your friend just passed away, it's really good to believe in a resurrection and conquering death. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ, that he does come to rescue us from our sin. We thank you that Jesus did not just come as a spirit or as a prophet to declare forgiveness, but as a man who is prophet, priest, and king in the whole fulfillment of the Old Testament, embodying the fullness of God and bearing all of our sin and the consequences of it, including death and sickness and disease. We thank you for the whole gospel. We thank you for the power of the Spirit. We thank you for the power to heal, heal broken hearts, heal people who are in need of cleansing in their hearts, but cleansing in their society, to be reunited with fellowship when they feel lonely and ostracized for whatever reason. We thank you, God, for the gospel that transforms communities, that breaks down walls, that serve as barriers from people fellowshipping with one another, whether Jew and Gentile, white or black, rich or poor. God, we thank you for the good news that we have that Jesus conquered death. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Praise be to God that Jesus has risen. He is alive and that he reigns and that he rules and he is seated at the right hand and he will return to judge the living and the dead. Thank you for this message of hope. In Jesus' name, amen. As we sing the next song, we're going to remain seated and we're going